so much for coming here. Sure. Um, my name is Carmen Lopez, and today is November 2nd, 2016, and I am here with... Khalil Cumberbatch from Just Leadership USA. For Our Streets, Our Stories, Oral History Project focus on the criminal justice system. So Khalil, what has been your experience with the justice system? Mm -hmm. Um, so my experience with the criminal justice system um, has been in the form of incarceration. Um, I served six and a half years in the New York State prison system um, from the years of 2003 to 2010. Um, and then left that system uh, under two and a half years of community supervision, which is otherwise referred to as parole. Um, and, you know, once I successfully completed parole in 2012, I was off of parole for about another two years when, because of my criminal justice involvement, meaning specifically my felony conviction, I was then also susceptible to being uh, deported because of my uh, 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 green card status but non-naturalization status and the fact that I had a felony conviction. So that just re-exposed me to a system that in many ways mirrors the criminal justice system. And how was that experience with immigration? My experience with immigration in the five months that I was being detained uh, with the government's ultimate goal of deporting me um, was tougher than my actual six and a half years of incarceration for many reasons. One, because um, I knew that my incarceration had an end date, meaning that I had I didn't have a uh, sentence where it was like a 25 to life, so I had to go in front of a parole board. I had what is uh, commonly referred to as a flat bid or a determinant sentence, which meant that I had a specific release date and the Department of Corrections couldn't hold me past a certain time. And so I knew that on this date that I would be released from prison um, whereas with immigration detention, you don't have that. It is very much indeterminate, meaning that they can hold you for as long as the process takes. And I was in immigration detention with people who had been there for two, three years. Um, for a matter that is technically considered to be a civil one and not a criminal matter, meaning that, you know, you don't, although you technically do have the same right to due process, it is not a sense of urgency that's placed on in a civil case than it is with a criminal one. Um, so although I was only there five months, it took a huge advocacy effort for me to get out. Um, had I not had access to that, to those networks and those people and those resources, I could have potentially still been in immigration detention. Um, uh, so, you know, my, so my experience was worse because of that. And then it was also worse because um, I had I had a family. I had two young children when I was in immigration detention. And when I was incarcerated, I didn't have that. It was just me, you know, being, you know, facing my punishment kind of like, you know, by myself. Uh, but with immigration detention, my family was dragged into that process because they were also being punished. Um, you know, I was being held um, uh, indefinitely, meaning that no matter what I had done over the previous four years, the judge, the immigration judge, could not take that in consideration to determine my uh, eligibility for release, meaning that although I was one week away from a master's degree, although I had paid my taxes for the previous four years and had a, uh, a stellar reputation in the community, he couldn't take any of that into, into consideration. The only thing he was 
taken into the only thing that he had the authority to take into consideration and make a ruling on was the fact that I did indeed have a felony conviction and that made me um, mandatorily detainable. Um, so you know my family suffered because of that. You know my daughters um, psychologically you know were really traumatized because of that. You know here. You know, they're used to their father being very much engaged in their life. And then all of a sudden, one day they wake up and he's not. And, you know, being very young and, you know, not really having context on how the world works. Right. I mean, you know, when they learned that I was in jail, it was very hard for them to rap, to rationalize that, you know, jail is for bad people. Right. And they know that their father is not a bad person. It was very hard for them. Um, and then the last one was, um, you know, the punishment was different. Uh, immigration detention was worse for me because the punishment I was facing was much different. When I was in prison, the punishment was my imprisonment, and I had access to resources that would then make that punishment as best a time as I could make it, meaning I had access to programs, I had access to college, I had access to family, and so on and so forth. Whereas with immigration detention, you don't have that. you know. And the ultimate punishment is you being banished, essentially. Um, and in my case you know, banishment to a country that in many respects I don't consider to be home. You know, it's just a place of my birth. And had I been returned there, I would have not been welcomed as a Guyanese citizen. I would have been welcomed, <laughs> for the lack of a better term, very much as an American who just so happens to have been born in that country. And there's a huge level of stigma and shame associated with people being deported, um, you know, because people don't, people in uh, in most Caribbean or in general foreign countries, don't have much context for the social economic issues that lead to your imprisonment. You know, they just kind of look at it and say, you know, you had, the, you had a really great opportunity and you blew it. And why should we feel sorry for you because of that? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge level of stigma and shame and ostracization that comes with someone who's being deported. And how was your experience within the jail system um, being an immigrant? Or did you face any? Yeah, I mean, inside of immigration detention, um, you know, they have basically two subsets of people that are considered to be quote-unquote immigrants. One are people who are there documented and then the people who are there undocumented. So, um, you know, there is this like tension that exists theoretically between the two parties. So meaning that, you know, people that are facing the deportation, uh, there there are a certain subset of that of those people who who feel like um, I shouldn't be punished as severely as someone who is here, quote-unquote, illegally, right? Like, I came here legally, I have a documentations, and I committed a crime, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I should be facing banishment because of that crime, and at least I'm not here, quote-unquote, illegally. And on the other side of that, people who are here undocumented, um, there are a subset of those people who feel that I may be here undocumented or quote-unquote illegal, but that is the only quote-unquote crime that I committed. I didn't actually commit a crime. I didn't do a robbery. I didn't hurt someone. I didn't, you know, I didn't steal anything. Um, so if you're here documented and you do that, then you deserve whatever punishment kind of comes your way. So there's this like theoretical tension that exists. Um, for me, immigration detention you know, after serving six and a half years in prison, you know, you kind of learn how to like navigate um, the uh, jailhouse politics, you know, like this, you know, petty politics that are involved 
with being in jail, you know, so like the blacks don't necessarily talk to the Hispanics or the Hispanics don't necessarily talk to the whites in immigration detention. If you add culture and nationality to that conversation, it becomes even more complicated because now the Mexicans don't talk to the Colombians and so on and so forth, um, which to me is it, it is like that doesn't even make any sense. I can't even begin to rationalize that, especially because we're all in the same position anyway. Um, so I kind of just like use my experience of serving six and a half years in prison to navigate some of those, um, you know, some of that BS that can just exist when people are frustrated, when people are taken away from their families, when people are fearful, anxious. Um, and, you know, that's how I kind of like navigated that process. I didn't really internalize any of the tensions that were directed towards me because I knew like people are not really angry at me and people are angry at the fact that they're there. Um, do you have a specific anecdote that you would like to share about you know, your involvement with the justice system? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I'll, when I was sentenced for the... So I committed a robbery. I had three co-defendants. Uh, we grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. Uh, you know, South Jamaica, Queens is one of seven neighborhoods in the five boroughs that has historically and continues to feed almost 70% of the New York state prison system. So that's seven neighborhoods that feed a huge amount of the prison population and for the most part, the jail population here in the city. Now that doesn't mean that those are people who commit more crime or they're, more, or they're bad or they're evil. It's just that those are neighborhoods, as we all know now, that are victims of uh, policing practices like broken windows theory, stop and frisk, and so on and so forth. Um, so South Jamaica uh, was a very tough neighborhood growing up in. And, you know, my me and my co-defendants all grew up in that. So we all had a similar mentality. We were childhood friends, had a really tight camaraderie. So we committed a robbery of two white women on 96th Street and Park Avenue. Now, when the judge sentenced us, Essentially, what he said was, it wasn't what we took, right? It wasn't the fact that we did this robbery. It was the fact that where we did it and who we did it to. You know, here were four young men of color coming out of a bad neighborhood, coming into a 96th Street and Park Avenue and robbing two white women. And, you know, if anyone knows anything about the city, 96th Street and Park Avenue is not like South Jamaica, Queens, right? So essentially what he punished us for was the fact that we came out of our neighborhood and committed that crime. I believe largely that had we committed that crime in South Jamaica of two women of color, I wouldn't have received an 11-year sentence. The judge made it as clearly as he could without being biased on the record that he was punishing us for what we did and not, you know, it was punishing, punishing us for who we did our crime to and not necessarily what we did. Um, so, you know, that, so my anecdote would be that, you know, justice inside of the criminal justice system is actually um, hypocritical because there really is no justice in the criminal justice system. Our justice system now is not designed to identify and distribute justice. It's there to identify punishment. And justice looks like the right amount of punishment, meaning that if the victims of my crime had said, we actually don't believe that these men should be in prison, I would have, I would have, you know, it would have been interesting to see that play out because the judge had a very 
specific vision on how he was going to punish us. And he was not open to any of the evidence that was presented in front of him in terms of uh, the fact that I had graduated from high school, the fact that I had community support, the fact that one of my recommendation letters was from a New York City Police Department detective, um, the fact that my other co-defendants all had jobs, that we were paying taxes from a very young age. He didn't take any of that in, into consideration. And from my perspective, justice would have been that, him looking at all of that and taking that into consideration to then give us some type of ultimate you know, decision. Can you share what, what have you learned by experiencing this justice system? So, I guess I, I, I guess I look at the answer to that question in two different ways. I mean, I learned a lot about myself, right? I mean, I learned a lot about who I am as a man, who I was, the role that I played in community. Um, and more importantly, I realized that everything I had done up until my imprisonment was essentially a part of the problem. And I wasn't being a part of the solution. And um, there it is. And, you know, for someone who, you know, was raised by a single parent, by a mother who was very loving and, you know, very strict and very clear on what, uh, you know, what her expectations of me were, um, those expectations were not for me to be a part of the problem. So I realized that while I was in, I realized while I was in prison that I was a part of the problem. And then I realized that if I was a part of the problem, what was I going to be doing during my imprisonment to then become part of the solution once I, once I left prison? Because the other part I didn't mention was I, I, was, I, was, sent, I, was, um, I was sent to a maximum security prison. So, you know, people that I w was uh, uh, around, some of the people that, that I actually befriended um, were serving very long sentences. And the reality is that even with an 11-year sentence, that was a relatively short amount of time compared to other people around me. So I did indeed have an opportunity to return to society, whereas some of my friends still now are incarcerated. Um, so I knew that I had to do something while I was incarcerated. So I learned about you know, who I wanted to be when I left prison, like what role I wanted to play, what I wanted to be as a, who I wanted to be as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a community member. Um, as someone who was formerly incarcerated, who refused to be beholden to the stigma and the shame associated with that. Um, and then I learned just about society and life and punishment in the criminal justice system in general. And I learned essentially that, right? So if I had to give another anecdote, you know, Richard Pryor, who's a very famous comedian, had many run-ins with the, with the criminal justice system. And, you know, he said that you know, when he went down to the local jailhouse, when he, you know, in one of the southern states, that he went down there to find justice, but what he found was just us, meaning he found people of color. And, you know, that's essentially what I learned about the criminal justice system, the prison system, was that, you know, we are punishing people who are victims of many different systems whether that's the education system, the welfare system, you know, the war on drugs, the war on poverty. Um, you know, we have people who are very, uh, who, who are victims in every sense of the word, but also are very tenacious in their ability to survive. 
And if we gave them access to the right resources, you know, their outcomes, I, w I would feel very safe saying that their outcomes would be very different. I mean, I met people who ran, um, uh, you know, very successful criminal enterprises and ran it very much structured like a, like a for-profit company. You know, there was a president, someone who was in charge. There were managers. You know, they had people reporting to them, line staff. There was revenue, revenue streams. Like, it was, it was very sophisticated. And if their business was selling T-shirts as opposed to selling cocaine, um, you know, they would have been very successful. But many of them and many, many of us, I would say, are taught to believe that that is not stuff that we can do. And more importantly, we don't have access to loans, right? Like we can't walk into a bank and say, as someone who dropped out of high school, I want to take out a $500,000 loan. I mean, many of us would be laughed out of there. Um, so when you give someone very limited options and, though, and one of those options becomes very lucrative, I mean, what do you expect? People are going to do what gives them what they need to take care of themselves and their family. And if putting a gun to someone's face is going to do that, or if selling drugs is going to do that, or robbing a bank is going to do that. What was your process of um, leaving prison and becoming the person who you are now and doing what you are doing? Now? Yeah. I mean, my process... So when I left prison, I knew two things. I knew one that prison was just not for me. Like I, I realized very early on in my incarceration that I just was not meant to be in prison. I just could not see myself going back to prison after the, after the first time. Um, so I knew that, I knew that I didn't want to leave. I, I knew that whatever decisions I, I was gonna make, I was never gonna commit a crime again. No matter what struggles I had to go through, I was just not going to put myself in a position where I could be you know, uh, re-incarcerated. Uh, re and some of that was because of the men that I left behind, and I just couldn't fathom going back in there telling them that I failed because there were men who invested a lot in helping me find the person uh, that I am today. Um, and I just couldn't face within them. Within the prison? With, yeah, within the prison. Men who mentored me and... Um, were they other inmates? Mm-hmm. Yep, people serving time, yep. Men who, you know, as I said, like, that shouldn't be surprising, right? Because, I mean, here are people who, serve, you know, they're incarcerated for 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, they're not just lifting weights. These people are very well educated. They are very, uh, you know, their, anal their analysis of society is very pure because they're not It's, their thought process is not convoluted by the everyday rigmarole of what happens just in life. Like they're, they're outside of society looking in and they have a very clear perspective on what is happening. And these are men who uh, know that the likelihood of them being released is very slim. So therefore, they invest their energy in developing men who will have a chance to go home. And... Um, You know, I just couldn't. I just couldn't go back in and face them. Are they organized? Uh, or, organizing as much as you can be in a prison system. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
I mean, I think in New York State prison system, people would be very surprised at how how much access people have to programs. Programs that are ran by people who are incarcerated, not state mandated programs or state sanctioned or state, um, uh, you know, state ran programs. Like there are mandatory programs that people have to take when they're incarcerated, but then there are also voluntary programs that are developed and implemented and ran by people who are incarcerated. And that goes for men and women inside the prison system. And, um, uh, you know, at the, the Attica Rebellion of 1971, um, is a really is a really great example of how people incarcerated. You would assume that they're like that they don't know what's going on, and this is before the internet age and all of that. But they were very keen on what was happening in society uh, because it is a microcosm of what happens in society. There is oppression. There is racism. There is classism. There is all of that that exists in society in prisons and jails. So yeah, these men mentored me, invested their time and energy with me, and I just could not face them if I was to go back in as someone who had recommitted a crime. Um, and then the other thing was that um, I wanted to rebuild a legacy for myself. You know, I felt like had I died the day I left prison, that the legacy that was left for me would not be one that my children would be proud of. Like they wouldn't, I, I thought that, you know, like they wouldn't be proud of telling the story of who their father was. And I wanted to change that. I wanted them to be very proud of telling the story of their father. And um, so with those two specific goals in mind, I kind of looked at my reentry as a blank slate. I mean, when I came home, I was 28. And, you know, like every part of my life was brand new all over again. I was building brand new relationships. I was, um, you know, I was... Uh, building a new uh, reputation for myself. I was building a new career for myself. Um, uh, you know, I was building a new academic career as well. Like, just everything was just brand new for me. And um, and I looked at it as something that was a challenge for me to meet that would make the men that I left behind very proud of me. Um, so, you know, my I say that to give you some context into like what my journey, like what my mentality of my journey was like. So for example, you know, I had some very audate, I had some very bold goals when I came home. So when I first came home, I said that I wanted to do, I said that I wanted to have gainful employment doing what I wanted to do in 90 days. And there were people who were tasked to help me do that. Organizations that I went to that their job is to help me find a job, and they were telling me that that was too ambitious. And, you know, again, going back to what my mentality was, I didn't, I just, I just couldn't translate that. You know, if, if someone told me that, then, then I just removed them from the equation because then you're not gonna help me, you're just gonna try to slow me down. And then when I did land a, a, a gainful employed job with benefits, doing the work that I wanted to do on the 89th day, it then became clear to everyone around me that I was going to do this, that I, my reentry was not something that was going to be dictated by other people's expectations of me. And um, so when I said that I wanted to start college and that I wanted to finish my undergraduate degree in two years, people took me very serious. 
And then when I did that and I said I wanted to do a master's degree in another two years and I wanted a master's within four years of being home, people took me very serious. And, um, you know, granted, I had access to opportunities. You know, I'm not saying that I was like this amazingly smart person. I just had access to really exceptional opportunities. Um, But, you know, that was what my transition was like. I came home. I started working as a case manager. Um, for people who are HIV and AIDS positive. Um, and that was largely based on my knowledge of HIV and AIDS that I learned while I was incarcerated. So when I came home and I applied for that job, during the interview it became very clear to them that I was very well versed in HIV and AIDS um, because I just had studied it for six years. I mean, anybody that studies anything for six years, you're going to be able to hold a pretty powerful conversation. And... Um, did the fact that you were previously in jail affect that? No, I mean, they knew. They knew that I was incarcerated because <clears throat> how, I was, how I was introduced to them was very, it was very transparent in that introduction that I, had, that I was incarcerated. It was very clear. The man who introduced me to them said that this is someone that I mentored when he was on the inside. He just came home and he is looking for a job. And if you want someone to teach about HIV and AIDS, this is your guy. You don't have to look any further. So it was very clear to them. Um, And so then I transitioned from doing that to working with people who were exclusively criminal justice involved, meaning I was working at another non-for-profit organization where we were helping people get into college who had had criminal justice involvement. Um, And then simultaneously doing that, I was working on my undergrad finished that up and then I was doing graduate degree I was one week away from completing a master's immigration happened that was May 8th of 2014 and then um, I got out of immigration on October of 2014 in in October of 2014 Um, and you know kind of like had this four or five month period where I was just kind of like figuring out what I wanted to do next where I wanted to work had a tremendous amount of opportunities available to me. Had already completed my master's because the school completed me because um, I was only one week away. Um, and then I knew that I wanted to do policy. I knew that I didn't want to do direct services. I knew that I felt that my best skill set was in policy and not in direct service. And uh, while I loved working with people, I wanted to work on a level where I felt change would be more broad stroked if it was in policy. So um, so I started working at another non-for-profit that was actually a uh, litigation and policy law firm um, that uh, was working as a policy associate there. <clears throat> and then uh, in January of this year, um, I started working at Just Leadership, helping to manage the leadership training program, um, but also still very much an advocate, someone who uh, you know, shares my story with the from the perspective of there are many other me's, right? There are many other Khalils, and um, you know, having conversations on a state and federal level about how do we change immigration policies to better help people who have criminal uh, convictions. Okay. And uh, how do you envision a more fair justice justice system? Yeah, I think increasingly more and more this country people who are immersed in this conversation about how do we create a more fair justice system 
we understand more and more very clearly, especially looking at other systems, right? So we can't just look at our system and say, well, this is how we fix it. No, we have to look at other examples from other countries. And I think more and more people, including myself, are becoming very clear that the ultimate goal is to, the ultimate goal of creating a more fair and justice system would require us to almost completely eradicate the current system that we have. And that's very granular and it's also very, very theoretical. So for example, you know, there are certain countries in this world where the most time, the most time that a person can get in prison, regardless of whatever crime you did, including taking someone's life, is uh, 20 years. It's the most time that you can get is 20 years. And after that, you're going to go back to society. But they also understand that while you are incarcerated for those 20 years, we need to give you everything that you need regardless of whatever you did to that when you so that when you do return to society that you are not the same person that went in there and then when you come home there is not stigma and shame associated with your incarceration now for us even as me even for me saying that for some people in this country that is unfathomable they cannot imagine that it is so hard for them to imagine it is equally it is equally unimaginable to say that we will build a ladder from the earth to the moon. They equate it just as the same. That'll never happen. You know, what do we do about racism? What do we do about the ultimately bad people? Like, what do we do about the people who just take people's lives for no reason or people that rape someone or people that molests a child? They automatically go to the, to the most heinous of crimes. But we know for a fact that most people in our prisons and jails are not incarcerated for that. That most people are incarcerated for uh, um, violent offenses that do not, that did not take someone's life, or there is a huge part of the population that is actually incarcerated because of either their addiction or some form of like drug-related offense. So my overall vision for a more fair and justice criminal, uh, fairer justice system starts with what we call it. I don't think that we should call it a justice system. I think that we should call it, um, you know, something that reflects uh, accountability. Because when you say justice, it automatically connotates bad and you requiring punishment. And the reality is that there are many people who are incarcerated that their, their ultimate punishment is living inside their own conscious of what they did. You can't punish them any more than that. I mean, I remember being in prison and hearing men cry at night. They were not crying because they were incarcerated. They were crying because they relived the moment where they actually did take someone's life. Um, for me, a more fair and justice system would be identifying and holding up the fact that we, people that we deem as perpetrators are also victims in many respects. You know, like there is data that is coming out now that shows that black men are victims of gun violence at higher rates than any other 
demographic and that the majority of them survive that gun violence. Now, for me, the first time that I realized the power of a firearm was when someone used one on me, when someone stuck one in my face. So I didn't just randomly figure out that if I, if I rob two people, that they'll just do what I want if I put a gun in their face. I knew that from firsthand experience. Right? So in many respects, I was a victim first. I was never asked that in court. I was never asked, have you been a victim of gun violence? You know? So that would also be another aspect of it that we need to understand that people come with trauma and experiences that in many cases relate. You know, it gives some context into why they did what they did. And then ultimately, you know, we need to treat human beings as human beings. You know, we need to, in, we need to involve people who have just as much stake in the outcome and maybe even more, no, definitely more than the court. So who I'm talking about is, in my specific case, those two women that I robbed, in my envisioning of a new justice system, they would be the ones to dictate what happens to us. Or that their input would sway, would have a huge outcome, a, a huge impact on the outcome. So if they said, you know, I actually don't believe that this person needs to be in prison. After learning everything about me, right? So they can't just say like, at the scene of the crime, what do you want to do with this guy, right? Because most people are going to say, yes, hurt him or do something really bad. But when they learn about a person, like, now what do you want to do? Right, here's a young guy who has so much potential, he could be anything. You can give him access. Like, the first time I was in college was in a maximum security prison. That is insane to me. The judge could have told me, we're going to suspend this case for a year. And one of the things you have to do in that year is get into college. And when you come back, if you do not, if you have not registered to college, there's going to be some consequences for that. He could have did that. He didn't. That, to me, is a more fair justice system when the judge is taking into consideration everything, including the victim's voices, including the idea that these people are, you know, are, you know, some they've engaged with some system before they got to me. And ultimately that people in prison are given everything that they need to, uh, to successfully reenter. I'm not going to say rehabilitated because that only connotates that these people are animals, Right, So rehabilitation means that assumes largely that you have never been habilitated in the first place. and or, or, or I should say that assumes largely that you have been habilitated in the first place. And the reality is that growing up in some really tough neighborhoods, people have not really had social conditioning in a very healthy manner. There are people that I've met in prison that literally believed that violence was the answer to everything. Meaning that if we had a disagreement, we had to fight. They just, they could not fathom, because in the environment that they grew up in, talking about, ish, about issues did not receive a favorable outcome. The only thing that would receive a favorable outcome is if you harm someone. Imagine what that does to a person, right? And then when you get, when you practice that, and then you get into a system that actually tells you, no, you actually didn't need to do that. You could have used this. You could have used that. At that point, it's too late. It's too late. 
You know, you're, now you're trying to recondition a fully grown adult past their formative years where it's very hard for them to rationalize, rationalize those things. So, you know, I, I say all that to say that what we have now as a justice system is actually the biggest hypocrisy, one of the biggest hypocrisies of this country because it is indeed not a justice system. It is a punishment system that justice is used as a shield to actually um, justify some of the most heinous decisions that people are making in terms of how do you punish people. What are the things that common people can do to make a change? Yeah. You know, one of the one of the things that we all need to do is to humanize the people who have been impacted by the system. It's very hard to do that because most people most people's perception of that is going to be tainted by something. So it's going to be tainted by racism, sexism, classism. It's going to be tainted by the media. It's going to be tainted by cultural upbringing. But as a society, you know, like for me, like, some one of my closest friends took someone's life. And previous to me going to prison, I felt that if someone took someone's life, that that was probably one of the worst things that you could ever do, right? So like I had this already preconceived notion of what those people were like. And when I met him, you know, he's continues to be one of my closest friends because he's probably one of the most compassionate people I've ever met in my life. And... A lot of that comes because of his past experiences and all of the regret that he still holds because of, because of what he did. But most people are never going to meet him. And when he comes home, they're going to say, you were, you were convicted of manslaughter? Of murder? You know, and they're totally going to look past the fact that he is a compassionate person that he is a husband, that he is a son, that he is a brother. You know, like, people need to understand that when we talk about 2.3 million people, we're talking about people. And that doesn't always mean that people are good. People are going to come with baggage, and they're going to come damaged. And that doesn't mean that we can throw them away. We've already seen what happens to that. History has already taught us. You know, once we start to otherize people, it's easy to just do whatever we want to do with them. You know, what happened in Germany with the Holocaust is a clear example of that. Once you start othering people, those are just the whatevers. Those are just the felons. Those are just the inmates. Those are just the convicts. It's easy to then say, you know what, well, don't give them access to fair housing. They shouldn't be in housing anyway. We need those room. We know we need those things. We need those units for other people. Don't give them access to a good job where they can actually take care of their family. Why? You shouldn't have committed a crime. You know, don't don't let them, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
don't, you know, um, don't not put them in solitary confinement, you know, whatever. They shouldn't be doing bad things in jail anyway. That's not, that's not how we need to look at it, you know. So most people need to understand that we're talking about human beings. And most people need to speak up. I mean, people say, well, what can I do? You know, like, have conversations with people. You know, like, some of the hardest conversations to have are around the dinner table. You know, like, I've met people who can go to any conference room, can go to any big meeting, and just lay it all out on the table and say, this is why you shouldn't be doing that. But then when they're in home, and their significant other, or maybe their sibling or parent says something crazy it's harder for most people to say you know what you probably shouldn't be saying that that's not true you know right especially when you know you saying that is going to actually lead to a uh, probably a, an, an argument or disagreement of some sort but that's the only way that we're going to change you know like so the only way that it's going to become culturally unacceptable to just talk about 2.3 million people like it's nothing i mean 10,000 people are a lot. If you ever seen 10,000 people amassed anywhere, that's a lot of people. 2.3 million is unfathomable. You know? Just as a quick side story, we met with the, some representatives from the Swedish government, including the, the Minister of um, Justice. And granted, you know, Sweden is a very small country. About 9 million people. But he just, he could not rationalize how you get 2.3 million people in prisons and jails. Like he just, and this is, the, this is a man who understands the economic issues. But he just could not rationalize that. And that is like, you know, it's very, it's unfathomable for a lot of people. You know, and here we are as a country saying, well... Out of the 2.3, we should only release the non-violent drug offenders. If we do that, then we're okay. That's not good enough. So most people need to hold their elected officials accountable on every level, city, state, federal. Um, you know, they need to be having hard conversations. They need to ask themselves, like, what's getting in my way of treating this person like a human being? Um, and then understanding that this is our biggest social justice issue of our time. You know, people are going to look back and say, what were you doing? To close, do you have any hopeful message mm -hmm. or a happy memory? Yeah. So, you know, the hopeful message is that, you know, history has taught us that we as a country had the ability to right our wrongs. And, you know, we... Uh, have the ability to persevere and be better than what we are now. Um, so it's going to happen. You know, like one day we're not going to have the system that we have now. And we're not going to have 2.3 million people. And we're going to go back to the levels that we had before. So that's reassuring. But the real struggle comes in how we get there and when we get there. Because, you know... We could get there in 60 years, but that's not good enough. You know, in, in 60 years, my daughter would be 
a senior citizen. And I don't want her to inherit this mess, you know. So we have the ability to do it. But, you know, we have to we have to come together to do it. And we have to understand that one issue is not related, is not exclusive to another. You know, so the Dakota Access Pipeline, that is oppression. And what we're fighting here in the criminal justice system is oppression. And we should not look at that as a separate issue. Immigration reform is not a separate issue. Those people are being oppressed. It is inhumane. And we need to stand up for that. So that's the other thing that people, you know, we, we have the ability to do it. But we have to stick together and we can't think in silos. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much sure. for the interview. Thank you.